Advent. Why Advent? I grew up in a church tradition where we almost didn't even use the word Advent. It wasn't, uh, I just didn't really know about it. It wasn't familiar. Um, some church traditions, especially evangelical traditions, have uh, strayed pretty far away from doing anything that looks like mainline church or high church or Catholic background or something like that. It's a, an abandonment from 1,600 years of church history, which I don't think is a great thing, but there's a reason for it. We're not going to go into that, but the point is that Advent is like, um, it's not new to me, but, 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 but living into the rhythm and the practice on an annual basis is. I celebrate Christmas every year. That's not new to me, uh, but the idea of taking a, 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 a month where we're actually um, recognizing some specific movements in the direction of what we celebrate on Christmas is relatively new to me. And so if it's new to you, I just want to answer the question, why Advent to start? What does Advent even mean? And then we're going to get into our specifics of this morning. The word Advent means arrival. And so uh, the season of Advent is the anticipation of an arrival, the start of an event or the arrival of a person. It's kind of used for both um, situations and circumstances. And Advent, in the Christian tradition, is remembering the arrival of Jesus and the starting of the kingdom of God. It's rooted in a long historical expectation by the people of God that we read about in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible, and those are called the Israelites. They have this expectation, this anticipation that God was going to send this Messiah that was going to save them, but also through them save the whole world. And so um, we remember and we look back on the arrival of that Messiah that we see as Jesus. And so Advent's rooted in the fulfillment, not only uh, to have the expectations, but the fulfillment of those messianic expectations in Jesus. It's rooted in the belief that because that those messianic expectations were fulfilled, now the kingdom of God is actually available to all of the world, not just to the Jews, but but the actual um, living God is accessible to all of us. It's beautiful to have uh, Bruno and Silas here this morning and to um, sometimes we forget that we are not Jewish people. Like sometimes in the West, we're so like Western, like oriented and we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. We forget that like we're Gentiles and, and, and Silas and Bruno are Gentiles, in the, at least in the Christian text, or at least they were the people who didn't have the promises of God who now can experience the kingdom of God because of the messianic expectations being fulfilled in Christ. And so we are all people who get to benefit from what Jesus did on the cross and now have access to the living God and the power of the living God everywhere in the world, all over the globe, from Brazil to China to England to South Africa because of the messianic expectations being fulfilled and the kingdom of God now being inaugurated. And so Advent's rooted in the belief that because of that also, we have access to the spirit of God. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that we read about is now um, accessible to you and I personally. He lives inside of us and also um, amongst us. He's not in a place in the temple like we talked about a little while ago. It's actually the kingdom, uh, the, the actual spirit of the living God is available to us and is present to us uh, at all times and amongst us. That's at least what the promise is. And that was all started a couple thousand years ago at the birth of and then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that inaugurated all that. The cool thing about Advent, too, in our celebration is it's, it's, an, it's an invitation to a journey. It's not just a, a moment. We're going to talk about a moment later today because we're going to celebrate communion together. 
But um, the cool thing about Advent and the season of Advent is it's a journey. There's movements to it. And, and so we look back on the journey of Advent, and we, th- we oftentimes look back annually, but we probably should look back more often and even daily to this journey that we're invited into, now, because the reality is that because of what we celebrate um, during Advent, there's actually a life for us to live that's different as a result of it. We are invited to find ourselves in the story in the past for the purpose of actually living a different story in the future, and so that's why we celebrate Advent. It's an annual time of the church calendar to pay close attention to that journey that we're invited into. And this journey, this journey is a journey of turning into reality courageously, facing reality courageously. It's a, it's a journey of, of looking at what has been done and what can be done. It's, uh, it's not a journey of triumph or overcoming. It's not a journey of, um, like, uh, of, of being able to will yourself to a better life in any kind of way. It's actually a story that we step into, and that story is a story of God interrupting history to love and heal and save the world from his brokenness. The story is actually about showing us how we're not strong enough to overcome. We're not, we don't have the willpower to conquer. We, no matter how hard we strive, we're not going to be able to create the life uh, that, we, that we are intended to live, that, that our brokenness is not solved by our striving and our human efforts. That's what the story is all about. The story that we look back on and the journey that we're invited into is a journey of actually relying on God to do that because we are unable It's a journey where our role is nothing more than to receive the magnitude of this loving invitation and say yes to what we're being invited into. That's that's our response as a body of Christ, as faith community, is to say yes to what is being offered to us. There is a response. We don't work our way to salvation. We don't fix the problem on our own. We just say yes to what is being done has been done for us, and what will be done through us. And it's not only a faith of a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's a perpetual living invitation. That's what gives it its power. It's not just a time where we look back on something that happened, but it's actually, like I said, something that we're supposed to find ourselves in perpetually. Another way to say it is that in Advent, we look back on what has been in order to look forward to what could be. Or we, we live forward or we look forward by actually looking backward. That's actually one of the unique things of the Christian life is that, is that constantly we have to do this back and forth thing at the same time as remaining present. That's why we take communion, which we're going to take today. That's why we read scripture and study scripture and meditate on scripture like we do. We think, is that's an old book. It's from 2,000 years ago. Why, would we, why don't we just read what's new and current or maybe what... Chat GPT says, like, today, it's the most up-to-date, and, and the idea is that we actually know how to live forward when we actually spend time looking backward, and that's what we're doing during the season of Advent. It's a journey that starts with awareness. It starts with knowing what has been, and it also starts with an awareness and a, and a looking at what currently is. I love uh, Rachel's prayer this morning. The um, the reality is that things aren't perfect yet. 
And so it's a, it's a journey that requires us to look back on the imperfection of things and what the solution was and is, and then also to look honestly at what things are currently, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to step into that mess courageously with a level of hope of what things could be. So why are we calling the season of Advent at Southside Holy Moments? Why are we tying those kind of things together? I think it's important that you know that because over the next couple of weeks, we're going um, to well, center our, our teaching on this concept of moments that we're going to recognize as holy. Some of these stories of the past, we can look at those and consider them holy. We can look at them as consecrated stories. We can look at them as as, um, as the type of stories worth remembering compared to other stories. It's actually amazing when you think about it that 2,000 years later, um, what we're going to talk about today is a simple story about a simple man, and we're going to recognize a moment that he had to choose a pathway. And thousands of years later, from people from all over the globe in Milton, Ontario, the other side of the world, we're um, looking upon this story and looking for something useful, looking for something uh, truthful, looking for something inspiring, looking for life and light in the midst of this story. And that's what makes it holy. A holy thing is something that's set apart, that it's, it's consecrated, it's, it's unique, it's, it's not used for normal use, it's actually more, uh, it's elevated above that. That's the, that's the language of holy. And so we're using language of holy moments because um, what I want us to recognize is that these stories are holy. That's why they're called sacred. That's why we're called authoritative. Because what they do to us, what they show us, what they teach us, what they tell us about, and that they're worth focusing our time, our limited time and energy on for the purpose of living the way that we're intended to live. And we're going to focus on a few parts of the story that um, maybe sometimes don't get all of the attention at all times. And the point of doing that, like we've said, is to be awake to the reality of what has happened so that we could properly live with hopeful anticipation of what could happen. That's why today we're covering the topic of hope in Advent. So this morning, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. If you have it on your phones, feel free to grab it out. It's worth just... Uh, Noting maybe you're, you're going to be asked at Christmas dinner to, to do a reading on a Christmas story, and you're going to be like, where's that found? Here's a good place to start, Matthew chapter 1. If you trust that the words I have on the screen are the words that it says in the Bible, then you can also just follow there. Oh, that's risky. I'm kidding. Matthew 1, 18 to 24. I'm just going to read this for us, and then we're going, to, we're going to pull it back a little bit and focus on a few parts of the story that I think are meaningful to us this morning. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was the prophecy, and this is fulfilling it. So when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary to be his wife. Around Advent season, we tend to focus a lot on Mary, and especially if you grew up in a Catholic church. Did anybody grow up kind of Catholic or very Catholic? And there's, a, there's a, a little bit of an elevated focus on the person of Mary in the Catholic tradition. I think the, the Catholic church right around the corner from here is named after Mary. I don't remember what it's called. Does anybody remember? Holy the Holy Rosary. Okay, so it's not. It's named after the Rosary. <laughs> There was a church nearby when I grew up that was, uh, about, it was named after Mary. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm only used to churches being named after Jesus. And then I, like, you start realizing, oh, the Knox Presbyterian is named after John Knox. That's a person. Anyway, we're not going to go there. Um, so Mary uh, tends to get a lot of uh, hype. And she should. She really should. Um, and, and, and I think Protestants, uh, in reaction sometimes to Catholic tradition, we kind of ignore Mary, and that's not good. And so uh, I, think, I think it's a good thing. But... One of the unsung heroes of the Christmas story is Joseph, the father of Jesus. He's one of those guys who doesn't have a whole lot of information about him, but he played a very significant role. And so this morning, I just want to highlight pieces of his story that's worth mentioning as we talk about holy moments and hope. And you'll see kind of where we're going with this. Now, things to know about Joseph, the father of Jesus Um, We know that Joseph was a carpenter. He was kind of a blue-collar guy, worked with his hands. It says that in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, we also know that Jesus kind of took after his father like you would if you were a first century Jew. You would usually do what your father did. And and so Jesus, that's where he learned the skill and the trade. And so that's what we know about uh, Joseph. He was an unassuming guy. I think he was around 30 when he took Mary to be his wife or when he was engaged to be married to Mary. He was called righteous and faithful. We saw that in what we read already this morning. Now we know also that Joseph was a descendant of David, which was very important in the story, the lineage connecting um, Jesus' lineage to King David. He was engaged to be married to Mary. We know that because the story tells us, and he eventually became her husband because the Gospels tell us that he did go on to marry her and was considered Jesus' father. Like we said, we know that he was Jesus' earthly father. He raised Jesus as his own son. Sometimes we forget that when we think about Jesus, we think of the mystical Jesus that um, maybe wasn't a real person in a real time. But, but Jesus, the story of Christmas is Jesus was a baby who was born. And uh, I don't know if you've um, seen a baby born, but they, don't, they can't do anything useful for about 17 years. Is that right? right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, nowadays it's 30 years. Which, like, maybe our generation, the one coming after, is just following the example of Jesus. Like, Jesus started his ministry at 30, so they're like, I'll move out at 30. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Um, That wasn't the way it was back then. Jesus was a baby. And he um, he was raised by a father and a mother. And he was fed by a mother's milk. And he was, whatever form of diapers they had, I'm assuming they didn't just let them poop in the air, um, Joseph changed that diaper. And Joseph taught this baby how to speak. And Joseph taught this baby um, the Torah. 
Joseph taught this, this child how to build things, how to construct things. You can picture Joseph playing. Babies, I don't know if you have, um, if you have a son. I've got girls, and we play and we wrestle. And then when I see dads, like, having younger boys, and, like, their wrestling's at, like, another level, you can, you can picture, like, you can picture, like, Jesus, like, throwing blocks and dad catching them and wanting to wrestle on the ground like any father would with his son. If, if the Jesus we read about is the historical Jesus, is a real person, then that was the role that Joseph played in his life. And we know that he played that role until at least 12, because we read about a story in the Gospels, I think it's in Luke chapter 2, about Jesus teaching at a temple. And some of you guys are familiar with the story. Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary, it says uh, Jesus' father and mother, they lost him. They couldn't find him for days, and they ended up finding him at the temple teaching all of the teachers of the law. And so Joseph's in the scene then. We don't really know what happens after that with Joseph. There's not a whole lot of history there. There's nothing that the Gospels testify to. We know that Joseph wasn't there, obviously, at the the death of Jesus on the cross. And maybe he was alive, but we don't think so because he wasn't there. We do get Mary there. Mary's all there throughout the stories and the Gospels, and Joseph isn't. He would have been much older than Mary anyway. And so we assume that he died sometime between Jesus being the age of 12 and Jesus being the age of 30 when he started his ministry. So in Matthew 1, 18 to 19, we read this. It says, His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. In the first century Jewish culture, to be engaged to somebody was the equivalent of being married to them almost. Uh, It wasn't just like you think of it today. You think of engagement as like an Instagram photo moment where you show a ring. Um, But, and then that is engagement, but, but they would have treated it as significant as the marriage itself. It was, it was the commitment was made and then they were just waiting for the ceremony, the party to be over so that they could consummate it. And so there was a season of time, a short period of time between engagement and actual marriage, but to be engaged was to be married. You didn't break that off. It wasn't something that you just broke off casually. Sometimes we think of today as like, well, if you get divorced, it's only if you're married. But if you break off an engagement, you should do that if you feel like you have to before you actually get married because then it's divorce. In their culture, breaking off an engagement would be the equivalent of divorce. And so we read about Joseph contemplating this decision to break off marriage with Mary because she got pregnant. And in their culture, as also maybe ought to be in ours, you didn't have sex before you got married. That was, that was the thing that sealed the deal. It was, um, it was kind of the, 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 the final act before the, the, the marriage bond was sealed. That was the sealing of it. And so to become pregnant, well, what are your, what are your options? What do you th- you know, what, what do you, what do you, how does someone become pregnant? There's one way to do that, right? And, and, and Joseph knows, I, well, it wasn't me, because we were not engaging in this. And so he, he, he was in a place where he was like, I don't know, this woman's pregnant, it wasn't me. 
and she's been unfaithful to me. And in, in Jewish tradition, um, there's only a few reasons you could actually get divorce or break off an engagement and uh, unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness or sexual unfaithfulness would have been one of them. He would have had grounds to divorce Mary or break the engagement. Not only grounds, this is an important part of the story for you to really understand. Not only would he have had grounds to do that, but it actually would have been the proper thing to do. Like it would have been at least a socially acceptable thing to do. Finding Mary pregnant would have been devastating to him and his decision to go forward with the engagement would have been nearly impossible, at least at a social level. Obviously, you have the risk of um, being thought of as the person who got Mary pregnant. And for him, that would have been breaking the law. And there would have been consequences to that. And so if he went through with the engagement, people would have been asking, are you sure, Joe? Are you sure? You, you can tell me. You can tell me, man. Like, it's all right. We all have slip-ups or whatever, you know? He would, have, he would have had to wrestle with that. But if he broke off the engagement, he would have been seen as justified. He would have been seen as not the culprit. But in order to do that, it would have also been risky for Mary. He would have had to go to the court and he would have appealed to the court that this engagement needs to end. And here's the reason why. And that would have resulted in publicly shaming Mary. Actually, the, in Deuteronomy 22, um, Joseph would have had grounds to stone Mary for, for becoming pregnant in their engagement. I know it seems extreme, but that's the reality of then. If he went through with the engagement, he would have risked losing social status. He would have risked possibly losing business. He would have compromised his familial relationships because there'd be all sorts of questions about him and no way to prove what happened. We learned that Joseph was a good man. And so at least in his consideration of breaking off the engagement, it says that he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided in his heart to break the engagement quietly. And so we can see the kind of good man that he was. Probably the proper thing to do for him would be to break off the engagement, but he was willing to do it quietly, not publicly, which would have taken a lot of goodwill. So then what happened? One thing stopped Joseph from taking the proper course of action at the time, and I really mean proper course of action. Like this would have been the thing to do, and every friend would have recommended break off the engagement. As we read in verse 20, it says, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So Joseph's met with this holy fork in the road. He's got the option of doing what everyone suggests is the right thing to do, what's, what would have been socially acceptable, which would have protected his livelihood, would have protected his familial relationships, would have been celebrated by his community, would have protected his reputation. He had the option to choose that, or he had the option to take Mary as his wife and risk all of that. And it really was a significant risk. But he had a dream. At least it says here that it was the angel of the Lord who came to him and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In verse 21, it goes on to say that the angel told him, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she'll have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. And so whatever hesitation Joseph may have felt after this dream, the story tells us that Joseph responded with an act of obedience to the message from God. In verse 24, you can see it says, When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. In other words, Joseph obeyed God. In this moment of a holy fork in the road, we change the trajectory of his life, Mary's life, Jesus' life. Joseph, in that moment, obeyed what he perceived to be the word of the Lord that had come to him. Joseph, he didn't know the journey that was ahead of him. When you read about their journey, it's quite an intense journey. He didn't know how this would pan out. He didn't know what would happen to him socially, politically, economically. He also couldn't verify the dream or the message. There's no way to prove to anybody that the, an angel of the Lord came and told you something in a dream and you just have to do it. That's just something you got to take by faith. And that's something you got to ask other people to take by faith. There's no way to verify that. At least not until later and you see things come to fruition the way that they did. So against all earthly, social, and religious wisdom, he obeyed God, is what the story tells us. And this moment that we're looking on today will always, forever, for thousands of years, all over the globe has been celebrated as a holy moment. And will, from this point on, continue to be celebrated all over the globe for, my assumption is the rest of human history, however long that is, um, as a holy moment as a moment where a holy decision was made and the kind of moment that's worth looking back on. A moment that we set aside in our calendars to celebrate. Those who have been celebrating Easter a long time or Christmas a long time, you come back to this every year. Isn't that wild? There's a million stories to come back to and this is the one we come back to. There's a million of holy moments to celebrate across human history of men and women making good decisions in obedience to God, and this is the one that we come back to when we look upon, we meditate on, we consider. It was Joseph's obedience that led to the protection of Mary from the shame that would have been cast on her socially. It was his obedience that led to protecting Mary from the physical threat that would have been due to her if she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. It was Joseph's decision of obedience that protected Jesus from the decree of Herod to kill every newborn child under two years old. If you know the story, you know that there was a decree to kill every child that was under two years old, and Jesus would have been. And it was Joseph's obedience that protected Jesus. It was Joseph's obedience that actually led Mary on a donkey, super pregnant Mary on a donkey for 100 kilometers to Bethlehem. You know the story. You're going to celebrate with your kids. It was Joseph standing by her side as her husband because of an act of obedience. It was Joseph's obedience that led to the beautiful nativity scene that we celebrate around Christmas. It was Joseph's obedience that led to Jesus being raised in a loving, kind, gentle home with a righteous mother and father. It was Joseph's obedience that led to Jesus being trained in the Torah and trained in the craft of construction and building things. It was Joseph's obedience that allowed Jesus the Messiah 
to be sheltered and cared for and protected for 30 years before the ministry of Jesus that we read about. 30 years. Anybody have a child who's almost 30? <laughs> Looking at some of the young adults in the back and the parents sitting next to them. It's a long time, isn't it? It's a whole lifetime, it feels like. And they're, they're not even 30 yet, right? It was Joseph's obedience that protected Jesus, cared for him, served him for all that time. It was Joseph's obedience that would shelter the future savior of the world from everything that a world would throw at him as a young man. And none of the results of Joseph's obedience, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been known at the time, right? He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have expected them. He wouldn't have seen that all of this was going to happen. He would have no idea what his responsibility would be. He was just invited into a moment of obedience. And none of the statements I've made this morning, and I hope you're hearing me here, none of the statements I've made this morning detract at all from God's sovereignty, from God's will, from God's mercy and his grace through the whole thing. It was God who sent somebody, a, presumably an angel, to Jesus in a dream. That's what the story says. That was God sending that. It was God who protected him. It was God who actually formed Joseph to care for Jesus well. It was God who sent the spirit to impregnate Mary. That's what the story says. So it was God who did all that. It doesn't take anything away from the sovereignty of God and the will of God. But we see clearly in the story that there's an invitation to Joseph, and that invitation is an invitation to obedience. God does all this work, but we have to respond in obedience. The story tells us that Joseph woke up from the dream and did as the Lord commanded. That's what the story says. And we look back on his decision to be obedient against all circumstances, and today we treat it as a holy moment. His obedience was based on the hope of a Savior, as any good Jew would have had, and based on a message sent from the Lord that Mary, his wife, as crazy as that seems, or would have seemed, was the one carrying that Savior. And for us, it's a holy moment because of the hope that we now have in Jesus as our Savior. That we're living in a season where we understand and know and can see the messianic promises were all fulfilled. We have the Spirit of God now and a King who sits on the throne in the kingdom of God that he is actively building with and through us. So when we look back in the story, we see obedience, and as a result we get to experience what we have today. And I want to bring this back to us because it's important that we get there. It's important that you look back on a story, but you actually contemplate your own story in the midst of this. I don't know about what your story is, but maybe you can think just now of maybe a moment in your life where you actually had a holy crossroads, like a moment where you could have decided one way or another can you recall any of those moments? Maybe it was a decision to come to Canada, or maybe it was a decision to stay faithful to somebody when everything else was telling you not to, or maybe, maybe it was another kind of moment where you felt a strong sense of this is what obedience to God would be, and this is what I really want to do. If you can think back on that and see that your own life is filled with moments that as you look back on them, 
are holy, or at least set apart, consecrated. When you tell your story, you tell those parts of your story. Do you find yourself in Joseph's story at this holy crossroads? Because we ought to. And a lot of times we don't know what the outcome of our decision of obedience is going to be. Many times you've made a decision of obedience even though it didn't seem to make sense or was rational. You didn't know what the outcome you'd be living in today would be. But you're living in it. You're experiencing it. And hopefully you can recognize it as something to be thankful for. I don't know. Let's just get a little bit more real with this. Maybe, maybe it was or maybe it actually currently is today. You have this nagging um, wrestling match in your life. Maybe it's in your marriage and maybe it's like Maybe you're constantly fighting with this urge or desire to either be unfaithful or your friends or your peers are telling you, look, just get out of it. And you're wrestling with, the, the, you're wrestling with, with what at least scripture teaches about marriage and what, and what you signed up for. You're, you're wrestling with whether or not you'll be obedient to what God would say, even though all of our earthly wisdom's telling us otherwise. Maybe our peers and our friends are saying, get out of it. You're not happy anymore. It's not working for you anymore. And you're left at this holy crossroads. Some of you may be living in that today where you're left at this holy crossroads of do I follow in obedience to what God says is good, what God says is true, what he's inviting me into, or all the other earthly wisdom about what to do with this marriage or this thing we call marriage? Do I just break the whole thing up because that seems to be easier and maybe that's even the wisdom of our day? And you might be at that crossroads or maybe you have been recently. I don't know, for you, maybe it's, a, maybe it's in your workplace, like, we wrestle daily with having to make decisions that are ethical decisions, even though on the inside, when you're in an organization, you see how things work, you know that the guys who get ahead or the girls who get ahead, sometimes they got to be dishonest to do that. And you wrestle with an opportunity maybe in your workplace where uh, to get ahead, it might require me to be a little bit dishonest or it might require me to step over this person or it might be requiring me to do something that would be against my conscience. And I feel like God's saying, don't do that. Do the right thing. Do what's good. And then everyone else is saying, no, do what, whatever will get you ahead. That's the right thing. That's the best thing. Everyone else, someone else is going to do it if you don't. And maybe you find yourself living at these holy moments, these crossroads between choosing obedience and actually choosing what seems to be the popular thing or at least the worldly or fleshly thing that you'd like to do. I don't know what your circumstance is like, but maybe you're wrestling with those on a regular basis. Maybe for you, maybe for you, there's something that you just feel this nagging sense that you got to tell the truth about. 